The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. If you're using the Black Bibles in front of you, this is on page 814. Would you stand as I read God's word? And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed, when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, for this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to pick back up in our series in Luke 
as we said, we're going to be camping out in Luke for some time. And so rolling into the new year, it was really sort of God's providence that we find ourselves in this text, a text that is calling us to something, a text that clearly explains what discipleship, followership of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. And if you find yourself in the place that many find themselves here on this first day of 2023, thinking through, like, what does this look like to pursue Christ or thinking about change, new year, new you, and all these sorts of things that the culture uh, tends to adopt and think through at this time, uh, you might find yourself here this morning with a bit of anxiety. Um, maybe some of you are already in full-blown, you've bought all your markers, you bought all your rulers, you bought all your new notepads, because this year you are going to be that person who figures out their life in their daily planner only for, well, I'll give you till tomorrow for that to fail, and then you guys are already shoving that stuff to the back of, back of the closet. Uh, during our prayer time this morning with the volunteers that led us in worship this morning, it was just interesting because uh, we were just asking, how can we pray for one another? And these are some of the, the, the prayer requests. Uh, some of them were like, I'm just physically tired. Um, and if I'm honest, you know, I'd rather not be here this morning. Uh, another was, I'm uh, sort of anxious. My heart is distracted. My mind is distracted. There's just things without pressing in on my heart that's drawing my attention from Jesus. Another person mentioned that with this whole like new year, new you, that the cultural vibe in this particular moment of the calendar year tends to be, hey, you now have the opportunity and actually you must do this, figure out 500 ways to change your life so that you can become a better human being and make sure you don't mess up, right? That's usually the kind of idea that's foisted upon us and that can spin us out and we fail to see that the way the scriptures call us to pursue Christ is not to bootstrap it, but is actually to die, die to self, to, de to deny self, to follow Jesus daily in those little incremental, I'm going to trust Jesus in this second. I'm going to trust Jesus in this next minute. I'm going to trust Jesus for this next hour, for this next day, for this next week, for this next month, so that when you're looking at this time next year, you look back and see that your life looks more like Christ, not because you made some epic one-off decision on January 1st of 2023, because of the little incremental daily self-denying, self-crucifying decisions that were made day in and day out. So that's why I say I did not pick this text because today is today. In God's good providence, we find ourselves looking at what does it mean to be an everyday disciple here in the first day of the new year. And you're going to see Jesus give us a very particular answer to this. And that's what we need. We need Jesus to tell us what pursuit of him looks like. We don't get to foist on Jesus what we think discipleship should look like. So it's going to be a good challenge for us today as we look at a sermon that I'm simply calling the Savior's Summons. The Savior's Summons. We're going to split this idea into two because next week Jesus is going to continue this thought. But this morning what we're going to see is this idea in these 27 verses. It's simply going to come down to this. I must see who Jesus is. I must see who Jesus is and then be ready to follow him. I need to see a clear picture of who Jesus is so that I can then deny self, die to self, and then say, I am going to follow you. Jesus is going to show us a clear picture of who he is 
what he came to do and say, because this is what I came to do, this is the model for how you follow me. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray. If you're here this morning and you can say, man, those prayer requests you were talking about earlier, man, that signed me up on that list. Anxious about the new year, anxious about life, anxious about job, anxious about finances. My mind is distracted right now in this moment. I'm tired. And to be honest, I'd rather be anywhere but here listening to this guy talk about things from the Bible. I know that I need to change, but I don't know how to change. The invitation of the gentle and lowly Savior is don't go bootstrap this thing. Actually, in your anxieties, in your doubts, in your worries, in the I don't know how to change, I run to me, make a beeline to me. Submit to my kingship, my kind rule. And that's what I'm going to pray for, and I'm going to invite you to pray for as well as we dive into this text, all right? So let's pray. Jesus, will you please help us to see you clearly this morning? Would you please help us to so follow you to where we go out and in the day-in, day-out rhythms, in between our Sunday morning gatherings, we would be empowered by the Spirit to live as Christians, little Christs, so that people can see the change of salvation in us. Father, we're asking that you would glorify your name. Holy Spirit, would you assist me to do and speak and preach and explain the scriptures in front of us in such a way to where the limelight is cast firmly center stage on the Lord Jesus Christ. You love to do this, make much of Jesus. I'm asking Spirit that you would empower me to do this. The enemy loves to steal, kill, and destroy, and the enemy right now would love to do nothing more than make sure we do not hear the word of God preached right now in this moment. So in the name of Jesus, I'm asking that you would stay the robbing of your seed, the word from our hearts, that you would plant it deep in the soil of our minds. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our minds to understand these scriptures and then to leave here knowing how to apply them to our lives. It's in the name of King Jesus, our Savior, our Christ, our Lord, I pray these things. Amen. I think a great question to start off the new year and the question I think that we can ask of this text in front of us or to put it this way, a question the text is asking of us is this question right here. What does Jesus demand of me? What does Jesus demand of me? Maybe you've asked this question before and wrestled with it. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing this question asked. Maybe you've asked the question but don't know how to answer it. Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, I would argue that these verses in front of us in Luke chapter 9 are God's gift to us because we find the answer to this question here in Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 27. What does Jesus demand of me? What does he command of me? What is his call on my life? If I say Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, what does that mean for me in everyday life? 
You see, as an everyday disciple who calls Jesus Savior and Lord, it is crucial that you and I ask this question, what does Jesus demand of me, and then not try to force or ramrod our answer into the question, but then to sit back and listen carefully as Jesus tells us this is the answer to this question. Here is what I demand of you as my follower. If you remember, Luke is writing this letter to a man named Theophilus. And Theophilus is on the receiving end of what Luke calls an orderly account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this continuing of his writing of this orderly account to the man Theophilus, Luke has now said the time has come to make plain what it looks like for the disciples of Jesus to follow him. But as we will see, in order to understand what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple, we must first clearly see who Jesus is and then see what he came to do. You're going to notice how Luke marries together these ideas that Jesus is saying, you have to know something about me. I am the Christ and you must know something about me. This is what it means for me to be the Christ because if you do not see who I am and if you do not understand what I came to do, you're going to get discipleship all wrong. You're going to get followership all wrong. You will not be able to correctly answer the question, what does Jesus demand of me if you think I came to do something that I did not come to do, if you think I am someone who I am not. Though many try in our day, in our age, we cannot divorce followership of Jesus from the identity and mission of Jesus. As Luke is going to explain, it is because Jesus is the Christ, the Christ sent to suffer, the Christ sent to die, the Christ sent to resurrect, that Jesus summons me, he summons you to deny, to die, and to follow. That is the connection in our text this morning. Aiming to bring certainty about these things to his readers. If you remember, so far in Luke's gospel, Luke has explained the Savior's resume. He has showed us who Jesus is over and over and said, This is why Jesus is the biblically credentialed. He is the qualified one to be the Savior that God said was going to come. And then Luke rolled into what we call the Savior's manifesto. If it is true that Jesus is this Savior, who is qualified and credentialed to be the Savior, what is he about? What is his manifesto? And if you remember, that's where we rolled into Luke chapter 4, where we were told that Jesus, on his own lips, that he is the fulfillment of the Isaiah 61 suffering servant. He is the one who came to proclaim good news to the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. This is his manifesto. This is what he is about. He is the Savior who's coming to save God great sinners. And that's what we saw the last time we were in Luke as we were working through chapters 7 and 8. Now, here we are. We find ourselves on the doorstep of Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 50. If you picture in your mind's eye maybe climbing Mount Everest, the peak Mount Everest is something you climb up to, you get to sit at the top, and then you turn around and you go back down. The peak, the Mount Everest peak of Luke's gospel is chapter 9, verse 51. 
where Jesus is going to set his face to Jerusalem, and the whole remainder of Luke's gospel is about Jesus' journey to the cross to accomplish what only he can do. So these first 50 verses of Luke 9 are Luke saying, we are about to crest the top, we're about to hit the peak, but before we get there, you need to know a couple of things. You need to know that the Savior and his summons, his command, what he's calling us to, it looks like something very specific, and the Savior is going to help us answer the question, what does he demand of me? Our order of tack this morning as we're going to work through these first 27 verses is going to look like this. We're going to divide up these verses and we're going to see the man, we're going to see the mission, and then we're going to see the summons. We're going to see the man, the mission, and then we're going to see the summons. So first we zoom in on point number one, the man. That's verses 1 through 20. Here's the question before us. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is this one saying these things and doing these things? Who is he? And I say to you this morning that this question, who is this man, is the question to ask. It's the question before us because it's the question that is actually being repeatedly asked in verses 1 through 20. If you scan your eyes down to verse 9, you'll notice that Luke is talking to us about a man named Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod is hearing certain things about Jesus. He's hearing certain things about the disciples of Jesus. And notice there in verse 9, it causes Herod to ask, who is this about whom I hear such things? He's hearing things about Jesus. He's hearing things about his disciples. And he is wrestling with the question, who is this man who works and lives and speaks and acts with such power and such authority? Who is this man? Then if you take your eyes and you scan it down to verse 18, over in verse 18, we learn that the crowds who are witnessing these things from Jesus and from his disciples, they're asking and they are answering the same type of question. When Jesus says to the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? The crowds are asking this question and also seeking to answer this kind of question. And then in verse 20, notice that Jesus is no longer saying, who do all those people out there say that I am? But he turns and he points this question square at the disciples and he asks them, who do you say that I am. Now, the captain obvious statement of the year is this. Luke chapter 9 follows after Luke chapters 7 and 8. You're very welcome. You can take that tidbit away. Luke chapter 9 follows on the heels of Luke chapter 7 and 8. Now, the reason why I make this very obvious statement is not because I think you do not know how to count, it's but because I want us to remember what we saw over and over and over again in Luke chapter 7 and 8. If you remember in those verses, Luke labored, 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 labored to demonstrate Jesus' power and authority to save. Over and again, we saw in that section, Luke chapter 7 and 8, the Savior's great salvation. And what we saw as Luke led us by the hand through these various interactions with Christ, we saw Jesus' power to save sinners. If you remember his 
ultimate interaction with the sinful woman, he looks to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And do you remember what this prompts the people at that little party to say? Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he led us by the hand to see Jesus' power to save from this disordered creation in the calming of the storm. Winds blowing, sea raging, boats sinking, disciples freaking out. Jesus sits up from his nap and says, shh, be quiet now. And immediately the wind and the waves obey him. They submit to the authority of the Lord, the King. And if you remember, the disciples were not only thoroughly freaked out and amazed, but it prompts them to then ask the question, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. Then he showed us that Jesus has power to save from the devil. Then he showed us that Jesus has power to save from disease and power to save from death. In every one of these interactions, Luke was giving us answers to the question, who is this man? Who is this man? And the point is that as Luke rolls from chapter 7 and 8 and rolls into our Luke 9 text this morning, Luke is saying there's two more answers you need to see that I need to see to the question, who is this man? So who is this man? Answer number one is this, that Jesus is the man who is great in authority. Jesus is great in authority. If you look there, starting in verse 1, Luke tells us that when Jesus called the 12 together, that's the disciples, the 12 Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And that when he was doing this, Jesus was showing the greatness of his authority. The reason the 12 disciples were able to, it says there in verse 6, go through the villages. The reason why they were able to preach the gospel with authority and then to heal everywhere with power is because the 12, the disciples, received from Jesus what Jesus had the right to give. Jesus, in other words, is giving power, he's giving authority, he's giving them the might, and he's giving them the right to go do these things because Jesus has these things. He's not giving what he does not have. He's giving from the extreme overflow of what he does have. The power and authority the disciples received for the mission that Jesus called them to were gifts from the one in whom all power and authority reside. As the disciples were doing this, what they were discovering was something about who Jesus is. Jesus is not just merely a Nazarene carpenter. They're learning yet again the answer to who is this man forgiving sins? Who is this man calming wind and waves? He is one with great authority. But notice in verses 7, 8, and 9, That what is plain for some is overly perplexing for others. And Luke tells us that while the disciples are gaining firsthand experience, while they're, in other words, getting to experience very tangible answers 
to the question, who is this man? And they're seeing who this man is very clearly. This little episode of Herod the Tetrarch sort of sandwiched in between the disciples going, preaching, healing, coming back and telling Jesus all about it is that Luke wants us to see that while some see these things clearly, others are going to fail to see these things clearly. That's what Luke is doing. He's going to show us who Jesus is and says, look at Herod. Some of us are going to be like Herod's. We're going to go to church. We're going to hear the scriptures. We're going to remember the Sunday school stories. We're going to have someone share the gospel with us. We're going to share the gospel with others. We're going to point them to Christ. We're going to confess Christ. We're going to call them to understand Christ. We're going to give them the raw gospel data, so to speak, so they can understand Christ. But they're going to find themselves like Herod unable to see clearly the answer to who Jesus is. Herod fails to see. But notice that as we roll on into verse 10 through 17, this feeding of the 5,000 episode, that's where we actually find the second answer to the question, who is this man? And starting in verse 10, we learn that Jesus is all sufficient to provide. The disciples need to see this clearly. Who is this man? Great in authority. Who is this man? He is the one all-sufficient to provide. That's what we learn in the feeding of the 5,000. We learn that only Jesus can supply and satisfy every need. Whether it's trying to feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, whether it's training your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, whether it's fighting to set Christ at the center of your marriage, whether it's seeking to honor Jesus in your work, whether it's confessing Jesus to a neighbor, whether it's walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, communicating clearly with the roommate, whether it's putting sin to death or anything else, the truth that we learn here in the feeding of the 5,000 comes down to this. Jesus is all sufficient to provide and your insufficiency and my insufficiency begs us to come and rest in him the all-sufficient one. We need to see this clearly. We need to come to understand this. We're not self-reliant. We were created to be Christ-reliant. We weren't created to be independent. We were created to be dependent upon the one who is all-sufficient to provide. The disciples needed to see this. They needed to learn this. And they needed to understand this. There was no way the 12 disciples could have fed the crowd in their own strength. That's part of the funny interaction there in verses 12 and 13. The disciples see that the day's wearing away. The 12 came and said to Jesus, send the crowd away. Go into the surrounding villages. We, we don't have the provisions. They need to go get the provisions Jesus looks at them and says, well, why don't you give them something to eat? I'm sure they got extremely vexed, extremely sweaty, very quickly. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Are you asking us to go buy food for all these people? Like, like the request here is extremely over the top. We can't measure up. And I think Jesus put a little smile on his face and said, exactly. My request is not so that you go out and figure out how to be self-reliant. My request is the invitation to come die to self-reliance and to come and live by leaning, living, breathing, eating, sleeping, 
in Christ reliance. That's the invitation that they need to see as it relates to Jesus. That's why with a tangible display of his sufficiency, Jesus led the disciples to see that he can provide. If you look in verse 17 there, Luke says that it was because of Jesus, notice, because of Jesus that all ate and were satisfied. It is because of Jesus doing what Jesus alone can do that people were satisfied. And that's what a disciple can experience when they daily lean on Jesus in his sufficiency to provide. Anyone have find themselves on the struggle bus with that one? It is so easy to lift your head off the pillow on Monday morning and go into bootstrap mode. To get up in January 1st, 2023 and say, I, insert name, will get this done. I will see that this thing happens. I, me, myself, I, me, me, I. You look in the mirror and say, you. And that is self-reliance. Jesus is inviting his disciples to see that your life was designed followership of me is to be a life of total, absolute Christ reliance. But notice that as Luke rolls us out of the feeding of the 5,000 interaction, in a pretty abrupt way, he smashes verse 17 right on to verse 18. Notice that They ate, they were satisfied, verse 17. What was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, Jesus begins to pepper them with questions. I think Luke is very intentionally smushing these ideas together. Notice that in the context, I think what Luke is doing is he's trying to give us a picture. Here's something true about Jesus Something we need to clearly see, there's going to be Herods in the world who fail to see who Jesus is clearly. Now let me give you another picture of who Jesus is. He's all sufficient to provide. Now let me give you a picture of how when we see Jesus clearly, he also helps us to see who he is. And that's what you see here in this smushing together of the feeding of the 5,000 and these questions that Jesus is asking to his disciples. It's in this context of Jesus's miraculous feeding that Jesus then says to the disciples, okay, here's my question for you. It's the who am I question, but I'm asking you, who is everyone else out there saying that I am? They're hearing my teaching. They're seeing my works. They're seeing my miracles. They're drawing conclusions. What conclusions are they drawing about me? Now, notice at first, It seems that the disciples are as perplexed as Herod as they begin to recite the popular ideas of the day. They begin to tell Jesus, Jesus, some think you're John the Baptist. Jesus, some people think you are Elijah. Also, some are going around drawing the conclusion that you're one of the prophets of old who has risen from the dead. While it's good to know what others think about Jesus, 
Jesus wants to know what you think about Jesus. And that's why he says, yes, I want you to wrestle with what others are saying, but you have to wrestle with the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? It's the question I would dare say that sits at the top of questions that we have to ask ourselves. Many never ask the question. Some eventually ask the question and never come to a biblical answer. But to follow Jesus in a way that sees him as Savior and Lord is to ask the question, Jesus, here's who I say that you are, and I'm not saying this because I'm foisting something on you. I'm saying this because you have opened my eyes to see who you are. And that's what we see going on when Peter then opens his mouth and says with confidence, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. Matthew tells us that Peter didn't arrive there because he has a Ph.D. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't use his ESV study Bible. It wasn't because he sat through some phenomenal sermon by Pastor Jonathan, and he goes back to Jesus and says, he said, Matthew says it was God who revealed this to him. His eyes were opened to see clearly, according to Christ, who Christ is. Has that happened to you? I'm not asking, have you heard a sermon lately? I'm not asking, have you prayed a prayer lately? I'm not asking if you own a Bible. I'm not asking if you've gone to a Bible study. I'm not asking, when was the last time you've gone to church? I'm asking, has God himself opened your eyes to see that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ? He is the Savior. He is God's anointed, suffering servant, sent to die, sent to resurrect, so that Satan's sin and death can be defeated. Have you seen this because God has opened your eyes to see this? We have to ask ourselves this question. You see, where Herod had a failure to see, the disciples have been enabled to clearly see. But notice that right on the heels of this confession, who does everyone say that I am? They are all saying these things, and they're off base. Who do you say that I am? Peter, on behalf of the 12, I would argue, say, we see this, you are the Christ of God. You are God's anointed Messiah, King, suffering servant, shepherd who's going to, and that's where they have to hold. Because if you would have asked them, you know Jesus is the Christ, Peter, what does that mean? Peter would have begun to fill in the blank wrongly. That is why After gaining this understanding that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus immediately presses things further in insisting that as the Christ of God, you as disciples need to ask the follow-up question. Not only who is this man, but what did he come to do? You see, if we only ask the question, who is this man, then we gain a partial understanding of Jesus. And the problem with a partial understanding of Jesus is we get a partial Jesus. But to gain a full understanding of Jesus, we must ask the question, what did he come to do? 
and then again allow Jesus to supply the answer to that question. Many love to ask the question, who is Jesus, and then force something onto Jesus. Many will feel the freedom to ask, this is what he came to do, and then force their idea of what they think Jesus should do onto Jesus. But Jesus here is asking these questions and inviting people to answer these questions, not so that they can force something on him, but so that he can clearly point them and say, yes, it is true, I am the Christ, and because I am the Christ of God, here is what I must do according to the Father, and I'm going to show you how this is going to go forward. This is why the disciples now need to understand the mission of Jesus. That's what you see there in verses 21 and 22. You see this idea of the mission of Jesus. Just look at how Luke writes. Jesus strictly charged and commanded them, the twelve, to tell this to no one. For the longest time when I was growing up in the church hearing these things, it always struck me like if it is good news that Jesus is the Christ, why in the world does he say, please don't go tell anybody about it? It always caught me off guard. But Jesus knows they have a wrong answer to the question of what did Jesus the Christ come to do? And in great love, he says, you guys need to hold on to this because I'm going to blow your mind and I'm going to insert a new thought. According to God, what I as the Christ must come to do. Notice that's what he says. I am the Son of Man, and as the Son of Man, here is what I must. If you write in your Bible, this is the time you like triple underline, you write a big box, you put it in 12 colors of highlights, that word must. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes. He must be killed, and on the third day, he must be raised. As I'm becoming increasingly uh, older, I realize my movie references are also becoming increasingly older. So I apologize for those of you who are going to stare at me blankly because you are blessedly young and I am increasingly older. But if you remember, maybe for some of us who find yourself in the same uh, age that I am, that in 1980, a movie that would eventually become a cult classic was released in movie theaters, starring John Belushi as Jake Blues and Dan Aykroyd as Elwood Blues. Movie goers were introduced to the Blues Brothers. If you remember, the plot line of the story was a movie about these two brothers trying to rescue the orphanage that they grew up in. Why? Because they're on a mission from God, right? If you're like, why did he just talk real weird? Go watch the movie. It'll explain everything. Jake and Elwood go about doing what they're doing because God has given them a mission. So says them. Well, when you look in verse 22, according to this verse, for the Christ of God, we see the exact same thing. God's Messiah also has a God-ordained mission, only his mission is to suffer, be rejected, die, and resurrect. The mustness of Jesus' mission is what needs to be highlighted here again. For most Jews at the time, including the disciples, they packed the wrong freight into the term Christ. This is why Jesus says, don't go anywhere. I'm commanding you not to tell anyone that I am the Christ. 
For many, when God's Christ appeared, he would fulfill the role of this political, military kind of leader who was going to come and in this specific context overthrow Rome's rule. He's going to establish this new kind of kingdom, this earthly kingdom here on earth. But what must be made clear is that Jesus is not going to fulfill popular expectations of the Christ. Jesus is going to come back and he will establish his kingdom, but it's going to be at his second coming. In his first coming, his mission was to come, suffer, die, and resurrect. As the Christ, this is what he must do. For sinners to have any hope of salvation, if Satan's sin and death are to be vanquished, if guilt, condemnation, and the judgment we deserve for our rebellion against a very holy God is to be removed, then Jesus must, 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 must do what he had been sent to do. There was no way he could not, not do it. And it's here on this unshakable truth of the mustness of Jesus' mission that Jesus says, now that I'm building categories for who I am, and now that I'm building categories for what I came to do, here's my invitation for you. Here's my summons. You need to hear what I'm about to tell you through the grid of who I am and what I came to do. Here is my summons for you. If anyone, if anyone, is going to come after me. If anyone is going to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You need to hear this through the grid of who I am and what I came to do. Listen, for Luke to take all of this time to reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do is not a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. Some of you are probably wishing, couldn't you have just jumped right to this and told us this is what Jesus demands of me? I could have. But to do so is dangerous. If we divorce it from who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's because the mission, if we seek to go that route of divorcing it, which we ought not to do, but to recognize that we need to see who Jesus is and what he came to do, we must see these things because the mission of Jesus, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, what does it do? It provides the model for true discipleship. That's the answer to your question. What does Jesus demand of me? Jesus is demanding that you go and live like him. And to go live like Jesus, you need to ask the question, well, how did Jesus live? Jesus suffered, Jesus was rejected, Jesus died, and Jesus resurrected. There is your roadmap for 2023. That is what Jesus demands of you. That's what Jesus demands of me. Mission of Jesus is the model for the true disciple. If we get the mission of Jesus wrong, we will get discipleship wrong. If we get the mission of Jesus right, we will get discipleship right. You guys understand this. If we foist on Jesus, Jesus just came to be a good teacher, and I'm going to follow the good teacher, Jesus, then your discipleship is going to be off. If Jesus just came to do good works and just to sort of love people in a very sappy, lovey-dovey kind of way, and I'm going to follow that kind of Jesus, then your discipleship is going to be off. But if we get the mission of Jesus right, we're going to get discipleship right. Jesus said that a servant is not greater than his master. Thus, if Master Jesus denied himself, and if Master Jesus took up his cross, then genuine discipleship is to take the same form of cross-shaped self-denial. 
That is what Jesus demands of me and demands of you. To deny oneself, what does this mean? It's not simply to forego little pleasures in life. No, I'm just going to skip that second square of butter on my morning toast. I'm just going to deny myself. It's not what it's talking about. To take up your cross daily, it's not a picture of simply bearing a few small hardships. Well, I'm going on a chocolate deny, uh, chocolate diet. I'm going to remove chocolate. It's just my cross to bear. It's not what Jesus is talking about. True discipleship, modeled after who Jesus is and what he came to do, involves denying self and putting self in every sinful habit and ambition to death. Whether you're man, woman, young, old, rich, poor, black, brown, white, coming after Jesus as his disciple involves waking up and making a daily, deathly decision. I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to die to me. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to die to me. I'm going to go to work and I'm going to die to me. I'm going to talk to my children and I'm going to die to me. I'm going to give of my money and I'm going to die to me. I'm going to go and talk to my neighbor because I'm dying to me. I'm going to open up my home so my neighbors have an opportunity to hear about Jesus because I'm dying to me. I'm going to let my coworker know I'm a Christian because I'm dying to me. I'm going to go get some training so I can learn how to do these things because I'm dying to me. I'm going to give myself to these things because I'm dying to me. Coming after Jesus and his disciple involves making a daily, deathly decision. And notice in verse 23, Jesus said this to all. That's how 23 begins. He was talking to the 12, and now he says to all, all y'all, everybody, I'm talking to you right now. Self-denying, cross-carrying followership of Jesus isn't for the superhero Christian. Some of us are thinking in this category right now. We're approaching this like this. Well, yes, self-denying, cross-carrying. Guys like Pastor Jonathan surely should probably be living that way. But I don't know about me, man. I've got like bills and mortgages and car payments and kids and problems and cancer and sickness and suffering and hurt and physical ailments and all these things. Like, I don't know if Jesus is all y'all or body. This is what is going on right now. If you're going to be following me, this isn't a superhero Christian call. It is for the everyday Christian. It's for the married Christian. It's for the engaged Christian. It's for the working eight to five single parent in over my head struggling to make ends meet Christian. It's for the summons to, for the physically suffering Christian. It's the summons for the lonely, anxious, I'm worried about 2023 Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, then your followership is not an occasional affair, but it's the invitation to die to self, say self-reliance, get gone. I'm going to lean in Christ-reliance right now in the second minute, day, week, month, year. It's the daily declaration that says, today I will not save my life, but I'm going to lose my life for Christ's sake. Today, with God's strength, I will fight my tendency to cling on to a life lived for me, a life that wants to gain the whole world, 
Today in this moment with extreme joy, I will not be ashamed of Jesus. I will not be ashamed of his word, but I will go out and live in Christ's reliance upon him and walk in obedience to what he has called me to do. Why? Because I am a follower of Jesus. I do love Jesus and I want others to see that in me. So if we know that there is something that we do, or if we know that there is something we love, but Jesus hates, the invitation to followership is put that thing to death. Every area of life is to be involved. What we watch, how we spend our time, our money, our sex life, our family life, our work life, but it also involves the big decisions where I choose to live, what job I do and how much time I devote to it, whether I accept promotion, whether and whom I marry, and more. Whatever gifts and abilities I have are to be placed at Christ's disposal, in Christ's service, as I take up my cross daily and follow easy. False. Not easy. So how are you going to approach this coming into 2023? Are you going to storm the gates of Delta? Are you going to run out? Let's do it! Are you going to bootstrap this? Are you going to white knuckle it? Good motivational speech, Pastor John. If that's your attitude, you will falter and scorch out by probably about 3 p.m. this afternoon. And that's being generous with the time. Or the invitation to everyday discipleship looks like this. That is a tall order. You want me to deny myself every single second of the day Jesus and Jesus nods his head says yes. Jesus, I just want to be clear here. You're asking me to die to myself, live a cruciform life. That's what you're asking me to do, Jesus? And Jesus shakes his head, yes. And those of us who are honest right now know our response to Jesus. Jesus, I'm not sure I can do that. And Jesus, with a smile, says to you, yes, I know you can't do this. That's why the invitation to self-denying cross carrying discipleship is the invitation to come and lean on me. Jesus isn't saying, here is the model, kicks you in the rear and says, go do it. He says, here is the model. It is in itself an invitation to come and even lean on me. That's the invitation of the gospel. The self-denying, cross-carrying, life-losing disciple knows their daily need for a Savior. They know their daily need for a Savior. Anyone else? Does anyone here know their daily need for a Savior? I'm not saying no. I'm saying no. Like, I know. Experientially, I know. If I seek to attack 2023 in myself, I will burn out in a couple of hours. But there's actually hope for me to roll forward into 2023 and to experience Jesus in tangible ways that shake my world upside down and declare to the lost world that Jesus is alive and I love him and he has saved me. It's not going to be by, I'm going to be self-reliant. It's going to be dying to self, denying self, and walking and living and speaking in such a way where it's like, oh God, how I need you. 
I need you, oh, how I need you. We sang that song for a reason. Not because it's a good tune with some sweet lyrics, but because it's a confession of our soul. Jesus, I need you bad. I don't know how to parent my kids. I need you. I don't know how to love my spouse. I need you. I don't know how to kill sin. I need you. I don't know how to share Jesus with my coworker. I need you. That's the invitation of Christ-reliant followership of Jesus. So don't go off and make some 5,000 grandiose decisions today. Maybe your decision simply looks like this. I'm going to walk out today, and my decision looks like this. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you, help me to follow you in a way that looks like Luke 9.23. Amen. And then wake up tomorrow and do this. Take a tiny little step forward. But wake up the next day. Take another little tiny step forward. Wake up the next day. Christ-reliant, Christ-reliant, Christ-reliant. Who is this man? What did he come to do? What is my response? How are you going to respond to this? In self-reliance or in Christ-reliance? Let's pray. Jesus, that song we sang earlier, I just, I'll just speak on my behalf. I know that it resonated with my soul. In full honesty, Lord, there are just areas of my life where self-reliance is the banner over those areas of my life. And I'm thankful for your word that in its sharpness, in its double-edged swordness, it is being wielded by the Christ who cares. And that you're not laying open the corners of my heart because you are some malevolent physician, but you are the good physician. And with great precision, with a doctor's precision, you are wielding the double-edged sword of your word so that those dark corners of self-reliance would be exposed so that we might then confess, put them to death, and run after you in Christ-reliance. Lord, some of us don't know how to answer the question, who is Jesus and what he came to do? Some of us are here saying, I'm not sure I know who Jesus is, and I don't know that I understand what he came to do. Lord, would you just encourage that person right now that they are on the right path by simply asking that question? And would you encourage them to keep pursuing you because I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will make the answer to those questions clear for the heart that is pure and seeking clear biblical answers to those questions. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.